Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are uh, in Parshat Tetzaveh this morning, <clears throat> reading on the triennial division as we do here in this Friday morning study. We uh, are at Exodus chapter 28, verse 31. And we are in the description of the garments of the high priest. These are the instructions for what the high priest is to wear. So these are the instructions for them to be crafted. And then the instructions for how... Page 480 Thank you, Ruben. in the green. Thank you, Ruben. Um, Following the description of the high priest garments and then the priest's garments, the regular priest's garments, we get a description of how they are to be installed as priests. So the ceremony that goes along, the rites and rituals that go along with uh, installing the priests for them to do their job. But remember, we get all the instructions first, then we're going to get a repetition. And they made the ephod of blue, blah, 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 blah. And they did this, and they did this, and they did this, and they made this, and they made this. And then they called the priest forward. and So we get a doubling of a lot of these instructions, a lot of these details. We get the very detailed instruction, and then the very detailed report of them carrying it out. So as we said in a former podcast, um, something about the the real desire to remember this. Right? A real desire to hang on to the details of the Mishkan. And of course, some of the elements of the Mishkan are carried, a lot of them, most of them, you know, into the temple. Because it's possible that it was folks who had the temple who are retrojecting those symbols onto a portable shrine that might never have existed. Or there was originally some portable experience before they took over, um, control of Canaan and and that gets expressed in the permanent temple. We don't know which way it went. Um, in any case, we know in the temple that this was carried over. The priestly garments were a part of the temple rites and rituals. Um, so a real um, desire to stay very close to the details, the intricate details of all of this clothing, all of the vestments, all of the uh, Ornaments that and the equipment, because some of it winds up being an equipment, um, a piece of equipment um, that we see in the high priest. So we're going to pass around to you um, my laptop um, with an image of the high priest and an arrow pointing to each thing that we name uh, in this parsha, so you can get a sense of what that looked like. Because if you're like me and you are visually challenged mentally. Um, I, you can describe it to me forever, and I have no idea, right, <laughs> if I'm anywhere near, like, what that should really look like in time and space. Um, so we'll pass it around. Take your time um, to, to look at it, because we're going to start with some of this description. We're in the middle of the description at 2813, uh, so we've gotten uh, already the aphode described, um, and we, right, we've gotten... A description, if you look back to the verses before this, right, we've gotten a description of um, the breastplate that's got set 12 stones set in it. What's written on those 12 stones? 
12, come on. If I say 12, come on. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Y'all need some more coffee. So exactly right. If I say 12 and what's engraved, right? Names of the tribes. Um, so names of the tribes uh, in etched on the stone in micro calligraphy in uh, micro calligraphy micro etching which was uh, a specified specific talent or what do you call it um, thank you it's a it's a specialized craft it's a tr- specialized skill um, of this region is uh, very tiny engraving on stone. So some of you may have seen from Egypt, if you've been to Egypt, um, stone that then is done very intricately into a, a scarab, right? So that that idea of taking a, a semi-precious stone and etching and carving it carefully um, was very much a, a unique uh, trade like skill of this region. Hmm? Now you can get your name on rice. Now you can get your name on rice. So it's that same idea, your name on rice. Why do people like that? Um, because it seems impossible. Like, how would you do that? A piece of rice. What? Right? So this is as small as it got <laughs> back then. Um, it was, wow, how do you do that? You know, how do you etch so much carefully lettered stuff on a small stone? All right. So the, the aphode, the breastplate that he wore, the high priest wore with the 12 tribes. Why? Why 12 tribes? And their names on the breastplate. What, like he forgot their names? They'd all be sort of included and represented in the, the center of, of this holy endeavor. So at the center of this holy endeavor, those 12 tribal identities go in. Because who goes in to where the high priest serves? Just. Right, just the priest. And then the Holy of Holies is only the high priest, only once a year. So to make sure this is not about the high priest, this is about the people Israel, right? That he is a representative of the people Israel. This is not about him. This is not about his private ritual. He carries them into the Holy of Holies. He carries them into daily right service and into the presence of God. That this is about them. He's serving them, right? He's representing them, all right. Hmm? By, his By his heart. So this this uh, breastplate is over the aphod is over his heart, and actually, very nice instincts there, Robert. Rashi agrees with you and says, "On the on, <laughs> you're in good company, my friend." That there are twelve tribes on the outside. On the inside is written Yud Hey Vav Hey, close to you know, like in because the aphod is is folded over, and inside is the Urim and Tumim. We talked about this right last week or the week before. The Urim and Tumim, the way that the high priest would answer a question of national interest on behalf of the national leader. Um, would go before God and ask Urim or Tumim, uh, and and in so it has to carry that. But Rashi says it also carries Yud Hey Vav Hey written in there. So that is what's over the high priest's heart as he goes to serve. Okay, and we're going to see Yud Hey Vav Hey somewhere else too, aren't we? All right. La 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 la. So we're going to start at twenty eight thirty one. Someone would like to read. 
You shall make the robe of the ephod of pure blue. The opening for the head shall be in the middle of it. The opening shall have a binding of woven work around it. It shall be like the opening of a coat of mail, so that it does not tear. On its hem make pomegranates of blue, purple, and cinnamon and crimson yarns all around the hem, with bells of gold between them all around. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate all around the hem of the robe. Aaron shall wear it while officiating so that the sound of it is heard when he comes into the sanctuary before the Lord and when he goes out, that he may not die. Okay. Right? So this is an interesting little bit <laughs> here. Of the expression with bells on. Right. I'll, right, I'll be there with bells on. Uh, all right. So, so under the aphod and the choshen, right, the breastplate and the aphod, the high priest wears an ankle-length, long, free-flowing robe, which called a me'il, right? In modern Hebrew, me'il is coat. You know. Can I read it? It says, English, the English word here is male. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So in Hebrew, it's me'il, the same word that's used for coat. Kind of, you know, kind of an overgarment. Um, and it's to be pure blue. Tchelet. Right? Where do we know Tchelet from? Why do you know Tchelet? Hmm? The tzitzit. Shall contain p'til Tchelet. A, a thread of Tchelet. Right? So interesting that what delineates the priest is the tchelet, and yet we, each of us, are supposed to wear something of the priestly garment. Right? A p'til tchelet. That we should be an am kadosh. That we should remember we are to be a holy nation. A nation of priests. Right? So even though there was a distinction between the people and the priesthood, it was very clear that the Israelite was also supposed to understand themselves as connected to that. It's not separate, right? That we each are a daughter and son of the king, right? We are each, right, to feel obligated to behave in such a way that is reflective of our inherent holiness as a people related to yud and yud commands about being ethical and moral people. So... So there's a whole big thing about Tchelet, which we're not going to get into. We'll do that when we look at the commandment to wear tzitzit. Uh, but Tchelet, why Tchelet? Why, why, you know this, why are we de- dealing with this kind of blue? It's expensive, it's rare, it's the color of royalty. Not It's the same family. The dyes are from the same family of color that's very difficult to make in the ancient Near East. So um, very expensive. That's why it's the color of royalty, by the way. Right? Because it's terribly expensive. Is that why we call it blue blood? Yes. Or born to the purple. Born to the purple. So very expensive. Um, extraordinarily expensive. Um, when we talk about tchelet, um, there's a note in my, uh, you know, in my version that I study from, the JPS commentary, um, that talks about the relative, what it would cost today. And of course it goes out of my head because I don't have a head for figures. Um, which is why I do my job. Um, but, but it's, it's extraordinarily expensive to have a meal of all blue. 
And notice it says, no admixture of any other color. It has to be pure trelet. That would have been, like, right, really precious. Do you think it could also be a reflection of sky and sea and something very grand? So it's a very interesting question, Sarah. We, it's not only the royal color because it's expensive. It's also the color of magic. So if you look at the ancient Near East and you look at lots of buildings, lots of special places, they are painted blue. Blue was a color of magic and protection, right? If you see a Khamsa, often the eye is very blue in a region where that is not common. It's not like that's what an eye looks like. Think about the Near East. Brown eyes are the dominant color. That blue is about the blue lapis lazuli, that that color of protection, of magic. Now, is that because that's the color of the sky? You know, and that's where all that crazy power comes from? Lightning, vastness, rain, you know, like who knows? This is one of those anthropological questions that it's really hard to ask why. Like what starts to influence what that makes us choose a certain symbol or color? It's a really hard, I think it's an impossible question. I don't, I don't think we need to answer it. I think it's fair to say it's related. I, I can't imagine it's not related. The ocean that provides life, the sky that provides rain and life. I, I can't believe that's not related somehow to the human, right? Experience of, oh, that's a good color. <laughs> right? right? That's, that's a life providing color. In art, uh, Mary, the of course. Has to be. Has to be. And, Sheldon, you bring up a really interesting parallel because we talked about this a couple weeks ago that this is a people who just escaped or just was redeemed from slavery. And even if we don't take that as a historical truth that, you know, 600,000 people left Egypt and marched into Israel, we still know that most of the Israelites who would have been converted Canaanites, if we go with probably what was historically accurate, they had been serfs. They had had a really crappy life, the Canaanites who converted to Yahwism. They had had a really crappy life. So they could relate to that story whether or not it was their story, right? So those people, whether they came out of Egypt from being slaves or were Canaanites who had had really awful times under their overlords, um, in either case, these are people who who were didn't have access to lavishness, to royalty, right? To all that kind of crazy wealth um, that Tchelet and blue and purple are so symbolic of. And so like Mary, why is Mary in blue, right? Because she's queen of heaven. But that's not for me separate from why they need to put her in blue is because she was poor. She was pregnant and in a stable, right? Like she was just like these people, poor, and so you you look to right your your religious figures need to be dressed in the color of what's been inaccessible to you, upper class royalty, right? But now, if the priest is dressed as royalty, if Mary's dressed as royalty, and they represent me before the King of Kings, I all of a sudden am somebody a little bit more important. Aren't I? Like I have access through the Kohen Gadol 
to, he, he serves me, not serves me, but serves God, but serves for me on my behalf. That's my representative, the guy in royal expensiveness. He's mine. He's speaking for me. Mary's speaking for me. What is Mary's job? What is Mary's job in heaven? Of course. To pray for us. Right? Because we are sinners. And so she intervenes with God who might judge us and give us what we deserve. Right? And so Mary goes to propitiate. Is that what? You know, goes to petition, right, on our behalf. So the prayers go to Mary in the church. The prayers go through Mary because she is the one who can go get the job done. Same with the high priest. He's charged with getting the job done of, of what? Linda, what is the high priest? What's a lot of his job about? Taking care of our sin. It's so, right? No, we have sin that we do. It's a little different. So it's a li- it's a little different. But what I'm saying is, is that all that metaf- all that stuff in the church is reconstructing this. That's all. Like it's not unrelated. It comes from here that she's gonna wear the purple robes to go before God to deal with our sins. That's exactly what's happening here. The high priest go. I'm not exactly. Of course, it's not exactly the same thing, or they wouldn't have needed to be in a religion, right? Um, but it comes from this this place of the high priest on our behalf. Thank you, um, going right, going into the holy of holies, going before the presence of God to deal with expiation of our sin. We participate in that, of course. But I was going to say, uh, when I see in the Catholic, they don't do that as much anymore. But I remember where I came from. The priest wore the chasuble, which is that kind of dressing. And the colors that you mentioned, they were all in there. They had different kinds. They were all gold and blues and, and, and all of these. It's very, it's, it's, it's amazing how there's an approchement, there's a connection there to the way of representing. And of course, since they represented God, that's why they had so much power on of course. the congregation yeah mm-hmm. you bet because if if you're the intermediary if you're the intercessor that gives you an awful lot of power yeah 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 yep. but wasn't mary's job to bring the messiah to i always thought that was her job she didn't even know what happened to her she had this virgin birth so god worked through her presenting jesus <laughs> oh of course but then she has more work to do she does. She sends to heaven and then is very busy on behalf of, of people, right? So this idea of the priest having a lot of power ultimately becomes a seriously divisive force in the Jewish people. This becomes the focus of a lot of tension and becomes the reason we survived as a people. You've heard me say it before, but because there were people who were studying and praying and starting to access these texts in a different way, counter to the priesthood. They didn't like the power of the priests. They didn't like the corruption of the priests. They didn't like that the priests could do whatever the heck they wanted and then wash up, put on their stuff, and come serve, right? But they could behave however they wanted to. And it was a really big problem. It's a good problem because it meant other people were doing something else. And those people 
survived the demise of the second temple and are our forebearers. They gave us rabbinic Judaism. It's the Pharisees. It's the rabbis who are opposed to the priesthood. Not the priesthood. No, the, 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 the power, the corruption, the what it became, the, the feeling of, wait a minute, you know, just because you were born this and you, that, that you're somehow more powerful before the divine presence than me? Like, I embody the divine presence. I'm nice to people. Right? So, so it became a real philosophical, political, spirit, psycho-spiritual split. And because there was an active resistance to that being normative or, or accepted as the only way to relate to God, we survived as a religion. There was so much abuse of mm-hmm. Well, I just, when you're talking about all the, the richness, the expense, it came to mind trying to think of like a, not even, it came to mind as Imelda Marcos. Like who, and, and, and every rap song about, you know, Ferraris and expensive things. And it seems the exact opposite of what is exalted here. They're so priestly that there was so much money spent on them. That seems counter to, to our experience. And now what this, as the conversation proceeds, I see, yes, it is counter to our experience. We don't want to exalt something just because it costs a lot. So... You just have to go so far and just go to Rome. and go in So yes and no, right? So this is always the tension. There is a very active tension between expressing respect through wearing what is one's finery, one's finest. When I talk with the kids, you know, when they get the store portion, God help each one of them. Um, and, and we start having this conversation. I know Rabbi Renner has probably the same experience, right? It's very easy for them to enter once we present it to them as, so what do you think about clothing and expense, right? Once we go there with them, it's very easy for them to talk for a very long time about that tension. Like they know it's not respectful for someone to come in here wearing cutoff shorts and flip flops. We would not accept that. Would we? We wouldn't. You don't wear your cheapest clothing to the sanctuary. Unless it's all you have. Unless it's, because then it's not your cheapest clothing. Then it's what, it's the most expensive clothes you have. We don't also exalt, look at the, you know, how expensive the purse must be or the sunglasses or the finest kind. There's respect and then there's, you know, out of like showing off or or conspicuous consumption. So so yeah, my sake of- but we but we see it every single week in here. The Prada bag and shoes, the sunglasses, we see it every week. So it's here. But not that's not serving God. We're not doing it like it's not because so I guess the question is the tension is maybe to to show that you can because you came from a place where you were serfs and you couldn't before and so our God's so wonderful that we're going to do what royalty does and by metaphor make it that important becomes transformed into look at my Maybach and my Rolex and my whatever. I don't... It's not, it's not spiritual. I don't... So, yes. They're not separate, though. The we want to wear this for our God stuff is not separate. I, I, I don't think that comes just because they were oppressed and just because they didn't have. I think it's a human instinct to dress 
in the most expensive things we have, those representatives of what we value the most. The, and I'm, we're going to look at a piece by Rabbi Yael Shai, who I just completely love, um, these days. Um, where she, she talks about a Buddhist teaching about the finger pointing to the moon. And that often the finger gets confused with the moon. So that the instinct to indicate the moon, oh my god, how beautiful, is lovely. The problem is when you start to focus on the finger as the, right? So all of that finery points to we value this the most, mm-hmm. our relationship with the divine. So the high priest is going to wear the most expensive things we can afford to make as a people. The temple's going to be the grandest building we have with gold every flipping place. That's fine if that's like we're going to focus all of our wealth here because we want that to point to this is what is most important to us. What happens is it becomes the thing itself that we look to look at rather than what it's supposed to be pointing to. That's idolatry. The golden calf versus the ark. For me, that's the dialectic. That's the constant danger, the constant tension. The ark is gold. Let's be clear. It's gold. It's expensive. It's gorgeous. It's ornate. And it is hollow at the center. It is to delineate space. What's in that space? Teaching about how it is we're supposed to live and be with one another. When it's, when it's about the gold and the beautiful thing that's filled with itself, it's the golden calf and it's idolatry. They're very close, aren't they? They're both wood covered in gold. It's very, very close. So I think like to, to somehow say one is this and one is that is, is to kind of, is to lose our need to stay vigilant around Is it pointing to what is at the center of our lives or has it become the center of our lives? Beth? Well, I was just curious about something else, which is why do modern rabbis still wear robes? So that is not about this, Mm -hmm. right? It is to some extent in that it designates you as the role, not as a person, Mm -hmm. right? So the, the... but it was the reform tradition that was copying what? The church. The church. So, and that was about ecclesiastical garb, which is not unrelated to this, but it was a lot about the academic. Like, those are academic robes that those rabbis wear in those high church reform synagogues. They are not um, in any way religious clothing. They are academic stature scholars um, orators because those rabbis their congregation how did they relate to how wonderful they are it was the reflect the the reflected glory of their speaker of their orator of their of their rational masterful intellect up there speaking to them but they really sometimes like because it's so over there like speaking for them that they were important because their rabbi is important and knows a lot of stuff and can right it was much about reflected glory okay i mean i think it's important because we we obviously all of us can speak to god in however way we want we don't need to speak through someone just the obvious point here but 
you know, we all are inspired and learn from our rabbis. So you're saying that God the will. robe is a... <laughs> well, that's what you're here for, part of it. And so you're saying the robe is sort of a symbol of that stature in in the, in the modern synagogue. Yes, in the West. Mm-hmm. Y- yes. When you Rita? talk about that we shouldn't be um, respecting or worshipping the Ark, it seems to me that the Western Wall has become that kind of work. People worship a thing, a place, which, you know, it seems to be very distinct from what we're supposed to do. It is a very important point that you make, and people get really upset with me when I raise this point. Um, When I go to Israel, every time I go, and every time it's the day that we go to the Wall, I I honestly, honestly never know when I get to the plaza, am I going to go? to the wall or not. I never know. Because I live with a very constant visceral tension between a pull to those stones that is inexplicable, irrational, completely kishka-driven. Um, right? The, the need to touch them and lay my forehead on them and weep is, you know, and not weep because you know, the Wailing Wall, but, you know, out of being moved and opened up and whatever. And the ridiculousness, and, and I'm not, I'm saying for me, I just, sometimes I'm like, this is ridiculous. The men and women are separate. The Orthodox control the whole thing. We are nothing, you know, in terms of, you know, being rabbis or scholars or teachers or, or empowered, you know, people to do, you know, stuff that was considered men's work. And then only their kind of Judaism is acceptable and it's imposed on us there. And I'll be darned if I'm going to the women's section where I have to cover up for somebody else's version of what modesty is. And and like, and I just, I won't, I'm like, <laughs> you can't make me. You're not the boss of me. Like, I'm not going. And I'm not going. I'm not going to do it. I will not do it. I'll go to the other, by Robinson's Arch, I'll go to those stones. And I'll take some quiet meditation time. To, it's just as close, right, to the whole business. I mean, so it, it's a real lived tension that I don't think is a bad thing. I also experience it here when people who don't know our tradition see us open the ark And I bow. Because it looks like I'm bowing to the Torah. I'm not. I'm bowing east. But if you don't put the ark on the eastern wall, you have to make a choice between east and the open ark. And I think it's, I was trained, you face the open ark, which is always on the eastern wall. so, so I choose to face the open arc, but then it can look like I'm bowing to an object, right? Not so. It's a. I'm always very aware. Our sanctuary for bar mitzvahs is filled mostly with non-members, non-Jews. I'd go so far as to say. So and so, I get nervous, and then we parade the Torah around. And everybody touches it and kisses it. And the people who don't understand what that is about can can probably see exactly the same thing that you see in a Catholic church with an icon, mm-hmm. right? And what is the difference for them? Like so, so I'm always a little nervous about about idolatrizing, <laughs> um, 
whether it's the stones of the wall, whether it's the Ark and the Torah itself, that we, we have to find a way to continue to remember that it's the words of Torah that we respect when we stand when the Ark is open. It's the ideas and our commitment to how they evolve and change and what our obligation is to evolve them and change them, right? And activate them in our community. That's what we're bowing before is the presence that inspires us, who inspired us to, that inspired us, you know, to to be about that in the first place and that continues to sustain us and call us into that sense of obligation. And I don't know how to do that, frankly. It's one of my big challenges as a rabbi in 2015. Rabbi Renner? Um, the early rabbis have this same problem too, actually. It's interesting in the Talmud looking at when they're trying to put together prayer. What does prayer mean in terms of replacing sacrifice? And the choreography of it really scares them. It really freaks them out. <laughs> and they get stuck on a prayer called Tachanun, uh, which I talk about with some folks, where you get all the way down on your face, and the rabbis ultimately decide they're really uncomfortable with that because they're worried that people are going to get that same idea, that you're actually worshipping something physical, something in front of you, or the stones beneath you, or something like that. And even though it's clearly a practice that's going on, they would actually like to be rid of it, because they're scared of that. They're really worried about everybody getting the wrong idea, that it does become some kind of idolatry to some kind of physical talisman. And this whole idea of the choreography of prayer um, being that we bend the knee and bow at the waist, that was not how you bowed in the ancient Near East. You went to your knees, and then what did you do? Your forehead to the floor, your face to the ground, 100%. When, when, they, when the prime priest said, the name of God, the people Israel went to their knees, their faces to the ground and said, you know, ah, so that's the point. What happened? The rabbis got very nervous about what that looked like once they were living under Islam. Because if Islam has the same prayer posture and the pressure was extraordinary on Jews to convert, and a lot, a lot, maybe even most did. So, so how do you say I'm a holdout? You know, you're, you don't want to do the same posture that could be confused with I've gone over. So that stopped. Right? It became very, whoa, we can't do that, right, anymore. And so now we're left with kind of this, Interesting. Bow. I was took great pride in the fact that we as Jews bow to a book, kiss a book with ideas and with the discourse that it has created in our civilization. So, and look, it's the only thing that's dressed like a priest. And we have crowns, we have bells, we have breastplates. Um, I find that really cool. <laughs> yeah, and and that's why it stays. That's why it stays. I think because for a lot of us, it's really powerful, right? That because I agree with you. I'm like, I have no trouble, right, kissing the Torah because I am deeply proud that this is what we point to when we say this is worthy of my reverence is the ideas and the arguing about those ideas that Torah for me represents. Torah is a symbol representing all of the dialogue of the Jewish people around these are core concepts about how to live lives of holiness. What what concerns me is the same thing that's been a concern throughout history is when the symbol 
becomes like there's some discussion rabbi renner maybe you know that i don't know the citation or where it's even from but there's this whole discussion of if a building's on fire do you carry out the torah or your wife that is problematic <laughs> that they will count a torah for a minion and not a female person is a problem and that's the problem is it's the symbol becomes Right, the thing that's important, not what it's pointing to. So that it's just always kind of a dialectic. It's always a danger, Blanche. To me, it symbolizes survival. What symbolizes survival? The Torah. Uh huh. And it gives people hope that they will survive and be, continue to be part of the community if they study the laws of ethics and stick to their purpose and be a light to the dish. So that those ideas represented by Torah are what enable us to keep going, what give us life, what help us, enable us to survive, both sometimes I think literally, right, and as a people, for sure. Bert? I was to say, the, you're talking about the book and the Torah and while for us they're sacred objects, they don't, the, the physicality of it doesn't seem to have the same power that it does, for example, in Islam, where if somebody burns a Quran, yeah. or if you don't treat it properly, it, I, it, it, I have to disagree, respectfully. When I was in Yeshiva, we were taught in what order your book should be stacked on top of each other. And you Torah always went on the top. It didn't matter if it was the biggest, right? Your Sidur went on the bottom. Like, I mean, you know, like, there was a ranking of when it was written, when it was codified, you never put the, the, the book on the floor, right. God forbid. You, if you did, you picked it up and kissed it. There was lots of physicality. That, that does, I wasn't saying that doesn't exist, and that does exist within Judaism, but it doesn't seem to exist for most Jews with the same power that it does, for example, with most Muslims, where the actual burning of a, the, the, the trashing of the actual book, the physicality of it, is so powerful. So I, if, so I, I'll, go, I'll agree with you yeah. on the word most. Yeah. But within within Orthodox traditional Judaism, yeah. you bury a book; yeah. it's damaged. Right. You know, we have a Geniza. You know, we bury anything with the Word of God on it in a grave. So it's it's very much tied to the physical and everyone to the other side of of you know really traditionally observant Jews have obviously have a more complicated relationship to the physicality. The flip side is I see many progressive Jews who don't look at a siddur as anything special and will put it on the floor or they'll drop it or they'll stack them up and that bothers me. Right. It's so funny. One One of my favorite stories from Duluth is someone who was converting came to me and she said, well, when I convert, do I get a Bible pillow? And I said, What? She goes, where do I get one of those Bible pillows? And I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, well, in services where everybody sits and they have that pillow next to them that they put their Bible on. I'm like, that's their tallest bag. <laughs> right? But like, but everyone's instinct was to put their chumash or their sidur on the tallest bag, right? So she wasn't, she was observing something that was accurate, right? In terms of, you didn't just put it on the floor. You didn't just put it on the seat. You put it on the tallest bag. Mm-hmm. So the instinct was... Anyway, it was very, That's very funny. Like, uh, to your not. point, <clears throat> wouldn't you say... <clears throat> excuse me. Wouldn't you say that 
Today we have the schism between the Ark and the, and the Golden Calf. And there's much more significance given to the Golden Calf, the big house, 10,000 square foot, with lots of gold furniture or whatever, than to the Word. I think that we're you know, in an age where the Golden Calf is once more being worshipped. <coughs> yep. <laughs> yep, Laurie, did you have your hand up? Two things I was thinking, and maybe you talked about this in prior weeks, but I think all of the 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 gold and the garments and stuff would have been much more powerful and significant in an era where you had um, kings and pharaohs and stuff, and basically you're, those are the ones that would dress, and so by saying... No, our God is the one, and our priests are the ones that are dressing like kings, and we bow down to them the way we would bow down to a king, is making a very powerful statement that Pharaoh isn't God, God Yes, that's the good part. Right. So that is, that's why, that's of course, that's why it's here. That's what we said. It's royalty. They knew royalty. They Yes, Yudhei is now right. so, the one pointed to by this Royal finery, not Pharaoh, not death. Yes, hundred percent. The reality is, but I'm saying that's why I think a lot of that seems strange to us, and we don't relate to it because we don't live in that world anymore. Where there's anybody that we bow down to. Well, like for me, it doesn't seem strange at all. I mean, we're, we still put silver and expensiveness on the Sifrei Torah. We still adorn those things that are connected for us with. What we think are the central, right? The really important things about what it means to live a, a good, holy life. I, I don't think. Yes, it's not our milieu. It's the, you know this wouldn't be what we would look at and go, oh, definitely like that. You know that's. But I think as humans, we we know that the the power of that pomp and circumstance. Believe me, I'm. I've told you before. I am jealous in some ways of the Catholic Church. I'm jealous of the. Extraordinary finery on, you know, the officials of the church, of the incredible ornate. I, I, I get it. I'm still drawn to that. I still watch the royal wedding. <laughs> like, we're, we're, even if it's not our milieu, we're still, we get it. We're still pulled as human beings to, to wow, right? You, you know, and, and I think what's happened is exactly what you said is that now, it's not the robes or the crowns or the gold or the whatever. It's the house and the car and the vacation. And we are in serious worship of wealth and all of the things that go along with representing it, which now is not the context that they were in, like like Lori says, of, of royalty, but it is of the bag and the shoes and the sunglasses. So then that's however... Um, I've been to many Chabad you know, things and to their homes. Their homes are, <clears throat> they look like, I mean, they use old old couches from the street, and, but they have gold, can, silver candelabra that are this big, and they have the Kiddush cups, which are that solid silver. So there is a kind of worship. Um, I'm not sure if it's of the spiritual or if it's of the material, I, again, I will say it. I don't think it's either or. I think it's a constant living tension for all of us in every aspect, right? That, that, look, nobody loves clothes more than me. 
I get, I get it. Like I, I it's a, just a constant, a constant tension that yes, I want a silver kiddush cup. I'm not going to use a Dixie. I'm not going to use this for kiddush. God forbid, Khalila, Khalila, right? It's, it's beautifying the mitzvah is a really important principle for us that you pick, you pick solid silver, of course. And then it's like, then I gotta constantly fight, right? Relating to the silver and not to the sanctification of this time that I need to behave in that time a certain way if I'm gonna make Shabbos. Right? It's unfortunate because when you walk into a Chabad Friday night, those candles are so beautiful, those candelabras. You don't say, you know, what a beautiful way of worshiping. Because we're human. But you have to remember it. That's, it's a personal intention to bring yourself back to why it's that way. And that's, right, that's the work. That's the constant work. One more, and then I'm going to read from Rabbi Yael Shai. I just wanted to say that there's also an expectation when it comes to a priest or a rabbi the expectation of, 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 uh, of the, we say that closer to God, and that's the same thing. So therefore, yes, we are words, definitely. <laughs> I used to think this is how I, I look, and I even I see the children. They look at older people. One made a comment to my mother. I guess you're closer to God because you're old. You know? This is also true. Yeah, you know, it's like a national. But I'm trying to say the the the. We say that. There's also those rabbis that I've seen plenty of them where people worship them. They they, they have a whole entourage and they need that entourage to function. And I remember we had a rabbi that came over here uh, before even Rabbi Reuben. We tried and, and and he had his entourage but he was expecting this entourage and he did not have the same kind of worship of where he came from. He was a, a scout incredible scholar, but there was something that he needed to have that strength and that power. Do you understand what I'm saying? So there's this thing, and when we go and we say we worship, it's not a question of worship, but there's an expectation when we go to a rabbi, whether with our problem or our different issue, whatever, there, there's something that we expect from that, because he's a learned person, and he has the knowledge of the book, and knowledge of direct correction, connection to God, so when we go to that rabbi, it's, it's there's a there's a there's a connotation of that he has or she has that kind of power. So I yeah, want so to I'm play saying. with that by looking at the next verse. I can't we're going to do two verses today. Exactly. I know it's late, so I'm believe me, I'm not going to keep us forever. You shall make a front lid of pure gold and engrave on it the seal inscription. Kadosh liyud hevavhe, right? Verse 36. Suspend it on a cord of blue so that it may remain on the headdress. It shall remain on the front of the headdress. It shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may take away any sin arising from the holy things that the Israelites consecrate from any of their sacred donations. It shall be on his forehead at all times to win acceptance for them before Adonai. So on Aaron's headdress, on a cord of blue, held in place by a cord of blue, is a gold engraved statement, Kadosh L'Yudhei set aside for Yudhei Vavhei, dedicated to God. 
reserved for God. Fill in whatever word you want for kadosh, holy to God, whatever, whatever word you want to use. Why? And it's exactly to your point. We're going to go there in a second. But why? So the only people, the people aren't going to see much of him. He what? He's behind the curtain. He's behind the curtain. Yeah. So why put it there? So they'll know it's there. They know it's there. And that's what she's talking about. So they know that he is set aside for a holy purpose. His life is dedicated. His service is completely dedicated. It's not optional. His life is designated for the holy. That's the power I believe you're speaking of. People who choose to dedicate their lives, because they choose. He didn't, the Kohen Gadol. The priest didn't choose. But rabbis and and ministers, and right? People who choose to dedicate their entire career, their life, their family time, their free time, their whole focus of their gifts of intellect, heart, soul, mind, body, everything to the holy. I think there is a there is something that pulls people to say that's different than when I go to a therapist, and that's different than when I go to my cardiologist. Doesn't mean I have any more answers, right? I think it does mean something about the intention with which people approach everything they do whose lives are dedicated to the holy. And that's what Aaron, Aaron doesn't wear it for the people. Aaron wears it for himself, say the rabbis. It's to remind Aharon, this is not about you. You are kadosh l'yudhevavhe. You are to serve. This has nothing to do with who you are. This has to do with you giving everything you are to making the relationship between the divine and the people Israel kosher and repaired. And to facilitate that relationship is your whole life. None of this is about you. That's a very important distinction. That's because a, a straightforward reading of this would suggest that there is an argument for a priesthood to stand between you and God to represent you and God rather than other. And it's tricky because he does represent the people before God. But but if you look carefully at the language of the of the rest of this two verses, <clears throat> he's to wear it so that he can carry the sins of the people. What does that mean? To ma- and that he will be able to make expiation for them. No say, Avon. Who do we say is no say, Avon at the high holidays? Yes. God is no say avon, carries our sin, or lifts our sin. The Kohen, when he is kadosh ladonai, when he is serving, when he belongs fully to the divine people-Israel relationship, he is able to help remove sin because he takes on the danger He takes on for the people Israel the consequences of anything that they've consecrated getting messed up. He's walking into the nuclear power plant. Right? Not the Israelites. So it can read like like 
He represents him, so he's more important. Really, really what it means is he is sent into the nuclear... What's wh- Where's it? Where's the really bad stuff kept? What do you call that? The core. He's sent into the reactor. The Holy of Holies is the core. I watch Star Trek. You know, you go into that engine room, you start monkeying with the antimatter thingy, right? (laughs) 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 Yeah, you can tell I'm not a scientist. So when you start monkeying with that, you are taking on the danger. And so if, if what they've consecrated, if anything gets messed up, that releases the nuclear force, right? And so, so he is important, but the Israelites are like, Yay, Aaron's really important. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to stay over here, and the Levites and priests can go over there by the... Yeah, they're really important. We They're super important. Like, thank God I'm not important. Right? Um, I said it was an important distinction. Yeah, yeah so it, it's a very important distinction um, because that too gets muddied. That got muddied. That got confused. And that's why there was a movement against the priests. And that's what bugs some of us today about Kohanim still tracing their lineage. Really? What for? Really? So you get the first Aliyah. Why? Like, what makes you, you know, really? So it's just kind of like, do you take on any danger on our behalf? No. Then what is that designation worth anymore? It feels like kind of holding on to, I'm... Somehow more something to everything. All right. So to that point, and I'm going to give this to you. I made copies. They're sitting on the copier. (laughs) So talking about describing all of this gorgeousness, right? It's still so that Aaron can be somebody who is set aside. And it says in in our text, the big day Aharon lekodesho ulkono li. God says these. All these beautiful garments are so that Aaron can be set aside and can priestify <laughs> to me. Right? Can be effective, can be consecrated, can be, right? Priestified for me. So, and it's, an, it's ornate, but it's all to point to the glory and honor of the Holy One. Right? Only our rabbi can make a priest a verb. <laughs> Right, um, exactly. So to dress these pre- to, to dress their priest members of their tribe in these lavish garments, usually reserved for kings and queens, is to insist on the value and worth of their own people. But of course, we are human, and humans get easily confused by shiny, beautiful things. The Buddha famously said that his teachings were as a finger pointing at the moon, and not the moon itself. He warned that, quote, a person who only looks at the finger and mistakes it for the moon will never see the real moon. We often tend to confuse the moon for the finger. We confuse the pretty orange flags, which she talks about being in Central Park, um, for the beauty of the whole park. In next week's Parsha, we confuse the beauty of the work of our hands, the golden calf, for a god. It isn't that the finger or the lavish garments or works of art aren't important vehicles for holiness, But without the holiness at the center, we find ourselves worshiping empty, flat, lifeless things and suffering as a result. Reading a fashion magazine or watching television, I can see the glitz and glamour of young, conventionally pretty models in expensive clothes, and I can feel the twinges of I'm not enough and the desire to worship at the gates of manufactured beauty. 
I entered these gates by spending an exorbitant amount of money trying to change endless things about myself and attempting to subvert the aging process altogether for the glory and honor of being beautiful. All those in quotes. Which lasts on a good day about a week. (laughs) Then the cycle of not enough repeats itself. It is a palace of emptiness. Beauty for beauties and arguably, arguably capitalism's sake. So how do we connect to the holiness at the center of beauty? How do we relate to the grandeur all around us and within us without mistaking the vehicle, the beautiful things, for the cargo, the meaning? Rambam, Maimonides, has an idea. He comments on the glory and honor phrase by stating, the clothes must be fashioned with full intentionality and possibly even require kavana, right? An awareness of the context you know, complicated um, meanings and sacred purpose. That is why God said, and you shall speak to all who are wise in heart, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom to create them, that they should understand what they're making. In Rambam's view, the integrity, heart, and awareness of the creators of the garments, as much as the soul of the priest himself, imbue the entire process with sacredness. Aviva Zorenberg says, clothing is indispensable physically, culturally, even in terms of the soul's needs. But clothing obscures the honest, flinching truth, the thing itself. It is perhaps because of this tension that the medieval commentaries stress the continuity of inner and outer in connection with the priestly vestments. Even the tailors and seamstresses must be pure of heart and aware of the symbolic meaning of their art. Only so can the potential inauthenticity of costume of the trappings of civilization be redeemed. Yes? It can be a costume or it can be redeemed to be a vehicle for agency related to holiness. It's a, and in our lives, it is the same, right? It is either a vehicle or a trapping. Whether we're talking about the Torah, the wall, the you know, anything. Um, so we redeem our love, says Rabbi Yael Shai, and, exci- and excitement about beauty by relating to it mindfully with our full presence, our full heart, and our intention. We keep the lens wide around beautiful objects and people, taking them in as an interconnected, interpenetrated, holy vessel that holds all of the beauty and life and godliness of the world including our own. Hmm. How do we keep the lens wide becomes the practice question. When we see beauty, okay, wonderful. How do we open the lens wide enough that it doesn't say she's beautiful, I'm not. She's beautiful, I'm less than. And make me go spend money trying to be like her. Right? How, how do we go, wow, what an amazing combination of features. What an amazing thing human beings are. That we are so different and yet each of us, right, so the same. Right? How do, how do we open the lens to include more in relating to beauty so that it includes us as well? Right? That I have, I'm part of the humanity too and wow, like we're, we're just remarkable, aren't we? You know, and resilience, and that I can, you know, be my age. 
50 next month. Um, come to my birthday party, March 20th, here at the synagogue. Um, that we can be our age and go, wow, so there's, there's different things about my beauty now. It's not what I see in fashion magazines anymore, right? That's gone because we worship youth as the paragon of beauty for women. You know, it's, it's different, right? And how do I appreciate the beauty in my elders so that every week I get a hit from y'all, right, of the beauty, the magnificence of my elders that helps me realize I can achieve that too if I work hard. If I stay centered and I stay busy about it, I can be gorgeous like that. Right? I can come into wisdom and depth and experience. <laughs> Reuben, who's she pointing at? Um, so, so I ask this Shabbat, can we take some time, really this Shabbat, to explore every time we go to that place? Can, can we figure out how to expand the lens, the, right, a little bit wider so that we include much more in our response to how gorgeous any given person or thing or situation is that we might truly um, use all of them as the blessing they're supposed to be as a vehicle to experiencing holiness. We have a copy. Yes, I will. Would you mind, Lois? They're on the copy machine. Thank you so much. Lois is going to go get them for us. I'm sorry? Rabbi Yael Shai writes on behalf of the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. I have signed up for her commentary every week, um, which I also use in my mindfulness meditation um, class, which we do next. Um, and I just I find her to be extraordinary at pulling from wonderful sources, but also going right to the heart of, all right, so what does it mean for me this Shabbos? Okay, we got the concepts. Now, you know, what? What do I need to do this Shabbos to kind of bring it to... To integrate it into our life, it takes, it's almost a lifetime, actually, to start really... But we can't, we can't do anything other than this Shabbat. I can't do the lifetime now. Mm-hmm. I can do no, this Shabbat. This is what we strive for. Every Shabbat for the rest of our life, it's what do I do this Shabbat, right? How do I achieve that this Shabbat? Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.